let's uh, get into this morning's message. Please turn in your Bibles to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 1. Luke's Gospel, chapter 1, beginning in verse 39. Now in those days, Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country to a town in Judah. And she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit, and she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, blessed is the fruit of your womb, and why is this granted to me that the mother of our Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy, and blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord." And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me. And holy is his name, and his mercy is for those who fear him. From generation to generation he has shown strength with his arm, He scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things. The rich he has sent empty away. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. And Mary remained with her about three months and returned to her home. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Almighty God, we come before you now, humbling our own hearts before you. We confess, O Lord, we confess that our minds and our hearts are not always in tune with their spirit. And so we're asking you now, Lord, to open the eyes of our heart, open our ears, give us us the ability to hear and to understand your ministry of the word. I pray, O Lord, that as we hear the words today, that it would not just be a lecture, but, O Lord, that your word would be proclaimed and our hearts would be lifted up, O Lord, and encouraged and and exhorted to obey your word. O Lord, as we look to Mary, the mother of Christ, O Lord, we see her as a model, a model of true worship, a model and an example of humility a model, an example of obedience. May we follow her example, O Lord, in our walking with you. And Lord, I ask for my mind and my own heart, give me, O Lord, unction, empower me, fill me, use me as a vessel of honor to declare your glory. I pray that you'd carry me along according to your word, that everything I speak forth would be not the words of Bob Jinzer, but the words of the Holy Spirit, O Lord, equip us today to not just be hearers of the word, but doers of the word. In Christ's name, 
Amen. Our sermon today is uh, an examination of the Magnificat of Mary. It is often referred to as the Magnificat because of the opening line where Mary says, My soul does magnify the Lord. It is a, it is a song that magnifies God. Um, and not only is it a song that magnifies God, but it is the first of four nativity hymns that we'll see in the next couple of chapters in the Gospel of Luke. Luke is not only a historian, he's not only a physician, but he might be the first hymn writer in the New Testament. Uh, he has a collection of four hymns in these next couple of chapters, and they are uh, songs, songs of exaltation to God, the first being the Magnificat. We'll see next week is the Benedictus of Zechariah. And then we will see the angels who sing in the fields, the Gloria in Excelsius Deo. And then, of course, the Song of Simeon, which is referred to as the Nunc Dimittis, when Jesus is presented at the temple to be circumcised. So these are four songs. This is the first of four that we'll be looking at. And as some uh, commentators have noted, perhaps the first Christmas carol. And um, in this Advent season, we're singing a lot of songs regarding the birth of Christ, the coming of Christ into the world. And the first person to pen a song to that was Mary herself, the mother of Christ. Um, I think it shows us a lot about who she is and the words uh, that are expressed in this song. And she comes in a long line of those who sing songs to God. God's people are a singing people. And you go back to the Old Testament in the Exodus um, after the Jewish people and the nation of Israel came through the Red Sea to the other side. Uh, the first thing we see is that Miriam pens a song of praise and exultation in God. Um, we see this in the book of Judges with Deborah uh, when she pens a song to God and exalting in him. And Hannah, the mother of Samuel, um, in the miraculous birth of Samuel, who she was barren, also pens a song uh, in exalting in God. So Mary is in a line of godly women who exalted in God and praised God and were, were songwriters in the faith um, that leave us with a legacy of importance of singing praises to God. In fact, Mary's Magnificat is very similar to Hannah's song, um, and that is in 1 Samuel chapter 2. You could see a lot of parallels and similarities. And so with that said, we're going to examine this hymn, this song of praise, and the first thing we're going to do is we're going to look at the occasion uh, for the song in the first place. And in verse 39 through 43, we're giving the occasion, and that is the visitation. Um, that is referred to theologians, the visitation of Mary to Elizabeth. Now, Elizabeth had already received her own miracle in the fact that she was a postmenopausal woman who, uh, through the blessing of God and a miracle of God, was able to um, have a child, which naturally and scientifically speaking is impossible, but with God all things are possible. Uh, this was, however, quite different than Mary, because Mary's 
uh, child was conceived by the Holy Spirit, whereas Elizabeth, through natural means, her and her husband were able to have a child. And she's six months pregnant, and it's at this point where Mary, after receiving the message from the angel, decides to go visit Elizabeth to see for herself exactly what the angel said because the angel told her in verse 36, Behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has conceived a son, and this is the sixth month with her who is called barren. And so let no man call her barren, what God has called fruitful. And so Mary arose, verse 39, and went with haste into the hill country to a town in Judah, and she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. And so Mary made haste. Now I want you to think about uh, Mary in this, uh, in this uh, trip to go visit her relative, her cousin. I don't know how exactly she's related uh, to Mary, but she's a young girl. She's about 13 years old. And uh, this would not have been uh, an easy trip. This would have been a two, three-day trip. Um, we're not told if she goes with an entourage, what we believe uh, from what it says here, that she probably went by herself. That would have been very dangerous in those days. Um, but she made haste. She made haste to go into the hill country, this little country town, to visit her relatives and uh, enters the home of Elizabeth and Zechariah. Now, of course, we know that Mary trusted and had faith that what the angel said was true. But, of course, if she's saying, if the angel is saying that Elizabeth is pregnant, by all means, let me make haste and go to verify if this is true. And if it is, she will rejoice. And so Mary sets off. It would have been from Nazareth to the hills country of Judea about a 70 to 80 mile journey. Now, of course, these were two women with two different uh, um, uh, stories, two different lives. One's a 13-year-old girl. One's a woman maybe in her 50s or 60s. They're, they're worlds apart, but yet they share a lot in common that God has chosen them um, to, to bring about his plan of redemption in the New Testament, in the New Covenant. And we'll see this often in the Gospel of Luke. Uh, where God is working through women in bringing about his plan of redemption and his purposes, um, where women were seen as outcasts and were disregarded in first century Jewish um, uh, culture and society. This was not the case uh, with Christ. Christ surrounded himself with godly women who served and ministered within the context of the early church. And so she comes to visit, and she greets Elizabeth and Zechariah, as was customary. And after that, amazing things happen. The first thing we notice in verse 41, and when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit, and she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. So there's an immediate reaction uh, to Elizabeth when she sees Mary. And I want you to think about this. Mary didn't send her a text message or email her. Those things don't exist. She had no time to send her a letter. There was no way that Elizabeth knew what took place. She had no foreknowledge of Gabriel visiting Mary, and she had no knowledge, pre prior knowledge, that she was pregnant with Christ. In fact, Mary would have been only weeks uh, um, in gestation 
um, Christ would have been as small as a little peanut at this point. He was not, she was not even showing. So when she walked into the room, the first thing that occurs is, is she, she is filled with the Holy Spirit, which explains exactly how she had knowledge. She wasn't perceptive of what took place. It was the Holy Spirit who revealed to her who Mary was. Not only was she filled with the Holy Spirit, but John the Baptist, who was in her womb in the sixth month of gestation, leaped for joy. Now remember what Gabriel had told her, that he would be filled with the Holy Spirit from the moment of conception. The only human being in the history of God's people who was filled with the Holy Spirit upon conception. And John the Baptist leaps for joy in his mother's womb. It's as if he is the prophet already prophesying and saying, make way for the Son of God. I mean, when you start to consider that, that there's John the Baptist in his womb, a little infant, six months old, and he is exalting in Christ who just came. He sensed the presence of Christ there and leaped for joy. And then Elizabeth, filled with the Holy Ghost, exclaims, blessed are you among women and blessed is the fruit of your womb. We can say that Elizabeth is the first person in the new covenant to confess faith in Christ Jesus. She didn't see him. She didn't hear him. But she, she immediately, through the ministry of the Holy Spirit, sensed his presence and was joyful and confessed and believed in him. We see that because later in verse 43, why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? It wasn't the Lord, but my Lord. And this harkens back to Psalm 110 where it says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my side till I make your enemies my footstool, your footstool. And in this sense, she had confessed Christ as her Lord. She acknowledged and recognized that, that Christ at, 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 at a few weeks within gestation was the Lord of glory. Now I want you to stop and think about all of this for a moment. Because in our modern day, in 21st century America, abortion is a major topic of discussion, particularly in our political system. And candidates are either running for it or against, um, they're either running for or against abortion. And, and there's many people even within the Christian community who debate the morality. I want to make an argument to you. Up until the 1960s, there was never a time in Christian history where there was a debate in the church whether abortion was ethical or not. It was always considered Immoral. It was always considered sinful. It wasn't until the 1960s and the countercultural revolution in the United States where we began to consider um, that abortion was under the protection of the 14th Amendment uh, that a woman could abort the, and terminate the gestation of her child. Now I want you to think about this because the arguments behind it tell us that it's a woman's body and she could do what she wants with her body. But I want to make something clear. 
that the fetus within a woman's womb is not her body. It is a body within a body. There are two different things. And the evidence of that is that there are two completely different DNA structures. The child who is gestating in the womb has completely different DNA sequence than the woman. It is not part of her body, it is in her body. As we were reading in Psalm 139, God knits us together in the womb of our mothers. While the government may grant you a right to destroy the life of a child in the womb, God never gives anyone that right to do so. And while it may be right in the eyes of the government, it is never right in the eyes of God. That doesn't mean that, that Christians and people who before they were Christian haven't fallen into sin and committed the sin. There's always forgiveness and grace with God. But one thing we must never do is affirm that abortion is moral or ethical because it is never moral or ethical. It is always sinful. Just consider the fact that John the Baptist in his six months was already leaping for joy, prophesying, and, 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 and ready to, he's ready to start his ministry. And the Lord Jesus Christ, who's weeks into gestation, according to people today, would say, well, he's not viable, so you could terminate the birth, terminate the, the pregnancy, rather. It was his very presence in his mother's womb that caused Elizabeth to be filled with the Spirit, to, to confess faith, and for John to leap for joy. Christ's presence was this big, this small he was, and yet it was enough to create a great feeling of joy and a sense of God's presence in the room. Let me also acknowledge one other thing here, and that is what Elizabeth says about Mary. Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. We spoke last week about when the angels spoke to Mary. We looked at different elements of the, of the Hail Mary, the prayer of the Roman Catholic Church that was expressed in that, and we saw that, that not only was there a, a change in the scriptural influence of it, um, but it, it, it mistakes and misunderstands what God's word says about Mary. Mary is a, a virgin child. She's 13 years old. She is a, a young woman, a God-fearing woman, a humble woman who is at the service of God to do the Lord's will, and she is therefore blessed among women. And she is, and, and that which is in her womb is blessed. But you have to understand this doesn't make her the dispenser of blessing, but the recipient of blessing. Just as I said last week, she is not the dispenser of grace, but the recipient of grace. Mary is, is, is God's chosen woman that he selected from eternity past that would bring forth the Messiah into the world. All of women in redemption history had hoped to be the one woman who would fulfill this prophecy from Genesis 3-5 where it said the, the seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent. Isaiah 7-14, which is the prophecy regarding the virgin who will uh, bring forth the Christ child into the world. Uh, this indeed fell upon Mary. She was blessed among all women. There is no other woman in history who will be more blessed than Mary. But that does not make her the dispenser 
of blessing. Notice what Elizabeth says. She calls her the mother of my Lord. This is significant. This is significant, but notice what she does not say. She does not say Mary, the mother of God. God does not have a mother. God is eternal in the heavens. She is the mother of Jesus, but deity is not confined to the person of Jesus. God is one and in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And Mary was the chosen vessel to bring the Son of God incarnate into the world. She is not the queen of heaven. She is a young Jewish girl upon whom the greatest promise in scripture has ever come upon. And then in verse 45, we read this. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. Now we get to the real reason why Mary's blessed. She is blessed because she believed in what was spoken to her by the Lord. It wasn't because she was without sin or as, as um, the Roman Catholic Church would assert, uh, Mary was a, a woman who needed a savior just as we do, as we'll see shortly. But it's because she had faith and trusted and believed in the word of God. And that's the case for every Christian. That's the case for every person who comes to Christ is that is that what makes us blessed is that we trust and believe in the word of God. It's not believing in ourselves and it's not, um, it's not something that we in and ourselves have goodness that we could commend, but it is believing in the gospel, believing in God's word. I want you to think of another thing here about what's going on, and that is Elizabeth has great humility. She could have been jealous of Mary. She would say, boy, I got, I got John, but she got the Messiah. She could have stood there in jealousy and said, well, why, why not me? Why her? She's just a kid. I'm, I've been waiting all these years. But instead, she's filled with joy and hope for her cousin. She's filled with joy and hope for Mary, and she pronounces a blessing upon her. You see, in life, there are going to be times when we will be upstaged and other people will, God will show more favor to than us. And rather than be jealous or envious of others, we should always rejoice with those who rejoice and be happy for others when God blesses them, not be jealous. And so Mary has received an enormous calling and a confirmation of that calling. Not only did she believe the word, but when she went to see her cousin, it was confirmed that she was carrying a child, the prophet of John the Baptist himself, and when she saw her cousin filled with the Holy Ghost, before she could even utter a word or share, what more did she need to know that God was working in her life? Now I want you to think about that because what confirmation do you need in your life to believe further that God's word is true? Remember Luke's purpose of the gospel, so that you may be certain that this word is true. There are going to be times when doubt's going to creep into our mind. And the grace of God always demonstrates itself, at least I've seen in my life, 
How many times I've doubted or I've waffled or I'm, I'm not sure. And God will send confirmations into our life. He'll send confirmations through the blessings and through him moving in our personal lives in distinct ways. He does it through the words of, of a preacher or, or, or a brother or sister in Christ who brings a word in due time. It could be done through the grace he shows when we're weak and we're needy and he comes through and he supports us and he bears us up when we can't hold ourselves up. And so Mary rejoiced. And so we look at the song now, and that's the second part, and that's the main emphasis now and focus of the Magnificat. And what we have here is a song of praise. And what it is really important is what it tells us about Mary. You know a person by what the songs they write. When you listen to songs on radio, secular music, oftentimes the music writers are writing about personal things in their life, and they're expressing their own emotions, their own hearts. And so when we read this hymn, it tells us a lot about the heart of Mary. It tells us a lot about her view of God. It tells us a lot about how she worships God. And it reveals that from the outflow of her heart is a young girl who loves the Lord with all her heart, soul, strength, and mind. You see, anyone can pen a song of praise, but this is one from the heart. The Bible says, from the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. And so... What do we see here? First, we know that Mary knows the scriptures. You cannot read through this song and not see that it is just filled with scripture. She's no stranger to the word of God. Her composition demonstrates she's acquainted with God's word. Her mind is saturated with scriptures and it's remarkable for a 13-year-old girl in first century uh, Palestine Judaism. She was obviously raised in a home where she sat at the feet and was nurtured in the word of God. Her mother taught her the word of God. Her father taught her the word of God. This was a young girl who had a high regard from the scripture. She memorized it, and it comes out in the song that she wrote. As I said earlier, it's a parallel to the song Hannah wrote in 1 Samuel 2, 1 through 11, who was also the recipient of a miraculous conception. There, there are many other echoes also uh, in the Old Testament traced through it. Look at uh, Psalm 34, 2 says, My soul shall make her boast in the Lord. Um, this is in verse 46. In verse 47, it's an echo of Isaiah 45, 21. There is no God else beside me, a just and God's Savior. Uh, verse 48 is an echo of 1 Samuel 4, 111. I'm sorry, 111. If thou will indeed look on the affliction of thine handmaid and remember me and not forget thy handmaid. And in Genesis 30, 13, happy am I for the daughters will call me blessed. And verse 49 echoes Psalm 126, 3, the Lord has done great things for us whereof we are glad. Mary's song is rooted in scripture. She has read the Bible. She's memorized the Bible. She's heard the Bible and she has a high regard for God's word. And this is a lesson for us. Because Genesis, I'm sorry, Colossians 3.16 says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs and thankfulness into your hearts to God. True worship will always be driven by scripture. If you notice something about all the songs that we just sang is that every one of them is filled with scriptures. And by the way, this is why I personally am a big fan of hymns. I know that uh, the church has tried to move away from the old hymns. 
I personally love the old hymns because the old hymns are so rich in theology. Uh, they're designed not just to, to sing, uh, but to actually instruct. The old hymns instruct us in sound theology. Um, a lot of the modern songs, I'm not saying all of them because there are a lot of good songs that are com being composed today, but a lot of modern songs just repeat the same words over and over and over and you don't really have a sense of depth or, 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 or uh, in any of these songs. They're just repetition, vain repetitions. And I'm not saying all of them, but a lot of them are that way. And that's why we have to look at the music. The music that we sing should always be driven by Scripture. And that is because the Bible draws us into the heart and mind of God. The more you know the scripture, the more you're going to know who God is. And the more you know who God is, you're going to want to sing to him. The song comes naturally. The words come naturally. The book of Psalms is a book of songs. The book of Psalms, you read all the, the Psalms, they're not just uh, uh, there for poems. They are actually uh, composed and set to music. Um, you can actually uh, read some of the later ones where Asaph, the choir master, is setting these songs to a meter, uh, these psalms to a meter, they're to be sung publicly um, in Israel, in, in, in ancient Israel. And so, and so when we know God and we know what he's done in our life, it's going to well up with us and cause us to want to sing. And one of the things I don't understand is how we can come to church and, and say that we're worshiping God, but we can't sing. It's as if our tongue, we get tongue-tied or, or we, we don't have the desire to express ourselves in songs. Well, I can tell you right now, the fault is not with the worship team. The fault is with us. It's our own hearts. Our hearts are darkened. Our hearts are maybe just filled with the world and with, with, with uh, just everyday stuff where if we're filled with the word of God, it's going to well up in a natural desire to want to sing and express ourselves to him. It's joy. And that's one thing, as I said, it distinguishes Christians from every other religion in the world is that Christians are singing people. God fills our hearts with songs of joy because we love him because of what he's done for us. Mary is also very humble. The next thing we learn about Mary, she's very humble. Gleaning from the opening lines of her hymns, we can see that Mary has a very, very exalted view of God and a very low view of herself. She says, my soul doth magnify the Lord. The word megalomai in Greek literally means to enlarge, to make big, to magnify. Uh, Elizabeth broke down her, her uh, microscope this week and she had it on the table what does a microscope do? Is it takes something small and makes it big? Well, God is already big. We don't need to make him bigger. He is already big. Mary's heart has just been uh, open to the largeness of who God is, to the, the, the magnitude of who God is. And her heart wants to magnify him, wants to make him look big to others. And that's what songs of praise should always do, is magnify God. Songs of worship are not songs about us. They're songs about God and they're to magnify him, to make us love him more, to, to focus on his character, to focus on his faithfulness, to focus on his deeds, his sovereignty. And in this song, we see there's a large emphasis on his grace. The heart of Mary is bent on making much of God. And she says in verse 47, my spirit rejoices in God, my savior. This is a very significant point. Mary recognizes that God is her Savior. She is in need of a Savior just like you and just like me. 
She is a sinner. She's in need of redemption, forgiveness of sins and salvation from the wrath of God. As I said before, again, many in the Roman Catholic view um, uh, look at this in the wrong way. They, they, they explain that the, the, the passing of original sin didn't come to Christ, not because of the overshadowing of the Holy Spirit, but because Mary was born sinless, they say. We call this the um, immaculate conception, that Mary was born without sin. She was born pure. But if Mary was born pure, then the question is, what about Mary's mother? If Mary was born without sin, then certainly the transmission had to stop with her mother, which according to Roman Catholicism, St. Anna. Was Anna without sin? Where would it stop? Where does the line end? And the only thing we can conclude is that from Scripture, what we learn is that it was interrupted because of the fact that Jesus has no earthly father, but God is his father, and that the Holy Spirit overshadows Mary and her original sin. She is in need of a savior just like all of us. Verse 48, he looked on the humble estate of his servant. Mary recognizes her humble estate. She's a poor girl. She's a nobody from a backwater town, Nazareth. God didn't choose. He could have chosen a woman of nobility. He could have chosen the wife of Herod. He could have chosen the wife of Caesar. He could have chosen one of the wealthy and powerful women, but he chooses a poor, unknown girl from a backcountry town. That tells you about who God is. 1 Corinthians 1.27, God chooses what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chooses what is weak in the world to shame the strong. He chooses what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are, so that no human being may boast in his presence. That is how God operates. God doesn't need competition. God doesn't need people who are filled with themselves and filled with pride and filled with self-exaltation. God chooses broken people. He chooses the least of these because he uses the weak things of the world, the powerless people of the world, the things that are not to bring to nothing, the things that are. God glorifies himself through the poverty and the weakness of his people. You see, it should be a reminder that not only was she humble, but she was blessed. We are blessed when we're humble. We are blessed when we have a, a right disposition before God. And the word blessed means to be happy. It means to be happy. It means to have favor. And you will be happy. You will have favor upon your life when you have humility. I got to tell you, all the people I know who are the most miserable people I've, I've ever met are all very proud people. Pride and misery go hand in hand. The more pride you have, the more misery you have. You're never happy when you're proud. But when you're humble, you're always happy because you never look to demand and insist on getting your way. You have no expectations. You don't, you don't, have, you don't get hurt or offended easily. But the proud person is always offended, is always hurt, is always upset, is always disappointed, is always grieved because the pride always thinks things should be going this way and they're going this way. Oh, pride is our greatest enemy. <clears throat> Verse 48, people in all generations, Mary says, will count me blessed. And that is true. As I said before, she's not the dispenser of blessing, but the 
recipient of blessings supremely above all other women. And then we go on to see in verse 50 where she begins to focus on God and his attributes. Uh, Verse 49, he who is mighty and, and has done great things for me and holy is his name. She recognizes that it is God who did this for her. She didn't do it for herself. And, and God is a holy God. He is a righteous God. And his mercy is for those who fear his name. This tells us that Mary knows the Lord. Mary knows who God is. She knows the character. She knows the attributes of God. We do studies. Um, every once in a while we'll do the study in the attributes of God. It's one of my favorite studies. And I do it every few years because we can never do it enough. To know who God is, to know his attributes, to know his character, his divine perfections, it makes you love him more. His mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. And she goes on to say, he has shown strength with his arm, he has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts, and he has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. She's just recounting Israel's history. She knows who God is. She knows the history of God's people. She knows the covenants, the triumphs of God's deliverance, and understands that God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Who did she overthrow? She overthrew Pharaoh and his mighty army. Brought the Red Sea upon them, wiped them all out. Pharaoh was the supreme ruler of his day, and God crushed them single-handedly. And he delivered his people. When, when the children of Israel came into the, into the land of Canaan, God gave them a mandate to wipe out the Canaanites and drive them out of the land. They couldn't have done it on their own. It was God who delivered them. It was God who strengthened their armor. When David completed the job, David never exalted himself, but he said, God is at my right hand. It is God who strengthens me. And I go forth in the name of the Lord. When he stood against Goliath, he didn't say, I, David, come against you. He says, I come against you in the name of the Lord. It is God who delivers his people. It is God who shows his hand. Or what about the time when Haman was planning to wipe out Israel? And, and Esther, a young Jewish girl who, who, who was married to the king, who basically had very little power, uh, says, for such a time as this I've been born, and maybe she could turn the heart of her husband, the king of Persia, and she did. And Haman, who built the gallows to hang Mordecai and all the Jews, wound up building the gallows for himself, and God delivered them once again. All throughout history is, a, is, is a, a record of God's triumphs, of his deliverance, of his intervention. And then in verse 15, 53, she says, He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent empty away. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, to his offspring forever she knows the Lord is faithful to his covenant dating back to Abraham she is a woman who knows that God is faithful to his promises he he helps Israel his servant in remembrance of his mercy when God revealed himself to Moses 
And Moses says, who should I tell them sent me? Tell them Yahweh sent you. I am sent you. For I remembered Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I have not forgotten my promises. You see, the birth of Messiah, the birth of Christ, was a reminder to Mary that God has not forgotten his people. God has remembered, and he is once again about to deliver them. And this time, the deliverance will be much greater than Pharaoh. It'll be much greater than the Canaanites. It'll be much greater than any trouble they have ever known. God will deliver his people from their sins. I want you to think about that because in relationship to when Joseph was visited by Gabriel and told to name Christ Jesus for he will save his people from their sins. It's a, I want you to reflect upon that and think about what our greatest enemy is. Our greatest enemy is sin. Your greatest enemy is not the person who occupies the throne on Pennsylvania Avenue in Washington, D.C. That's what the world and the media wants you to believe. Your greatest enemy is not overseas who are building ICBMs. Your greatest enemy is not the person at work who's seeking to get the promotion over you. Your greatest enemy is not the person who antagonizes you uh, wherever your antagonism may be. Your greatest enemy is your sin. Our greatest enemy is the, the very pride that I just expressed. It's the very pride that, that smokes God out of our lives. It's the very pride that puts self in the place where God belongs. It's the very pride that seeks to insist on our way to, to, to demand our rights and to demand our way to fight with everybody and to be at a, a, a place where only God belongs. And it's only Christ who can deliver us from that. It's only Christ who can deliver that from us from that. You can reform your life. You can get religious. You can act nice. But only God can deliver us from ourselves. Our greatest enemy is ourselves. And until we understand that, we will never understand the gospel. Because our sin not only enslaves us in this life and keeps us in bondage to darkness, but our sin condemns us forever in hell. Without salvation, without forgiveness, without redemption, we are hopeless when we die. You do not go to heaven because you're a good person. The only way we get to heaven is not on our merit, but the merit of Christ. Jesus is the only person who was good. Good enough to go to heaven. And then Jesus, who took our sins and took our place on the cross, he bore all the penalty, all the judgment that you and I deserve that we've earned, We've earned every cent of it. He took it and he paid the price in full. And he says, here's my gift to you. The greatest gift of all, my righteousness. The perfect record of my obedience, my perfect life before God is now yours so that when you go to heaven, when you stand before God on judgment day, you can say and show the record of Christ's righteousness as the reason why God should let you into heaven. I ask that question often in membership interviews. Why should God let you into heaven? If we think it's because something we've done, we've missed the gospel, we've got to go back to the drawing board. It's always because of what Christ has done, what he's accomplished. 
I know I say the same thing week in and week out, but I want to know nothing but Christ and him crucified. This gospel is the gospel. Not only must we hear it every week, it is the reason for the season. It is what Christmas is all about. Christ came to this world to give us this gift of salvation. And with that said, we need to humble ourselves before God. And like Mary, let's use the next couple of weeks to really rejoice and sing our hearts out for God. Not only here, grace and truth, but as opportunities open up for us, for the caroling on the 21st, for evangelism, let's tell others the good news. Let me conclude. Sadly, the church of Rome has turned Mary into an object of worship instead of a model of worship. People pour out their prayers to Mary as if she's omnipotent or a goddess. This is not what the Bible teaches us. If God wanted us to pray to Mary, he would have told us to pray to Mary. Jesus said, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. There's no way to the Father but by me. And so we have to understand that although Mary is not co-mediatrix, she is not the queen of heaven, and we should not pray to her, we should look to her as a model, a model of humility, a model of worship. There's a lot we could learn from her. And if we were to follow her example, then we indeed would also be humble and we would grow and we would be blessed. We would be blessed. Mary's son, the Lord Jesus Christ, would confront the world of Judaism and turn the religious elite on their heads. He would confront their phony worship. He would expose their externalism, the cheap shows of piety, all just outward appearances, but in his confrontation with them, he would quote the prophet Isaiah, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. True worship begins in the heart. This song wasn't just penned out of her head. This came from her heart. She worshiped God with a heart, mind, soul, and strength. And when God fills your heart with a sense of delight and joy, you won't be able to help but to sing his praises.